hope everyone's very comfortable because my very short message turned into two messages. But because of the lectionary, I really need the second message, but I like the first one more. So I have found a way to connect the two <laughs> so that we can follow the lectionary, but also we can follow my novelty. So imagine with me for a moment in the beginning. Yeah, it's always a worry when the, when the sermon starts in the beginning. Um, <laughs> Because we know i got to get to a gospel, right? And if I'm starting in the beginning, that's definitely the wrong end of the book. Imagine with me for a moment in the beginning. So God creates a beautiful world. And in this beautiful world, it is good. There's no sin. There's no corruption. There's no brokenness. There's everything just works how it's meant to. Um, it's the, what is it? The Apple universe. Um, it just works, and then the apple ruins it. No, it's not an apple. This is one of my chief complaints against people who draw pictures of the Genesis account in the garden when they draw the fruit of the knowledge of the uh, what is it? The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They draw an apple, which is like hugely defamatory towards the apple as a fruit. It doesn't characterize for us. It just says it looked good to eat. It doesn't tell us that it's an apple. Uh, what a ripoff for for the apple. Um, the apple symbol does have a bite taken out of it. It, it almost certainly is some kind of allusion back to that, um, to giving into temptation. Uh, but also it annoys me because it, is, it typifies the way that we read the Bible and we see it a particular way, even if that's not what it says. Uh, and so often we are raised in an environment and as children, we see the pictures of that story. So we all, always, forevermore, we visualize that story with an apple. And the same thing happens theologically over so many issues. We have a picture of what that looks like. And when we get to, um, uh, someone's looking for children's toys, maybe. Is that what's going on here? There was a huge crate of them there, but Brooke moved them into the other room. Um, uh, so when we get to reading the, the Bible as adults, all of a sudden, we see it a particular way. So when the Bible says that we should give, we see tithing. And when the Bible says uh, leadership, even if you're a Bible translator, sometimes you will translate the non-gendered word that they use to say those should lead or those should teach. We translate that in a masculine way because of the cultural uh, baggage of patriarchy that has been handed to us. So the, the picture of an apple in Genesis, this is not my sermon. I don't know why I'm preaching on this. Is a, it's a model, though, of how we see things in Scripture and we get it wrong. Uh, and that will in some ways relate to what ultimately what I want to talk about today, which is the idea of death and resurrection and heaven and how we have seen that wrong. There's my great segue to cover up that little mini sermon there. There's no death. There's no corruption. It's all good. There's no apple tree. That's probably some weird species that developed later. I don't know. Anyways, they're in the garden. It's all good. And then things fall apart. Everything is broken after that. But in the garden, God's space and our space weren't like this. They overlapped. The space that God inhabited and the space that humanity inhabited created a circle. Uh, and God was, well, in, in the, I think in the... In the later prophets, it talks about how God is in heaven and the earth is his footstool. But it's a space where they are fully um, overlapping. And then when sin enters, humanity says, we want to do what's good in our own eyes. We want to choose what's right and we don't want to trust what God says is right. And the problem is, is when we do what we think is right instead of what God thinks is right, we always do things that are selfish. And what God thinks is right is in this space and what we think is right was in this space. 
So the spaces of God's space and our space got separated. They were torn asunder and we were removed from the garden and, and we were put in this other space outside of the, the Garden of Eden where it wasn't all perfect, but where we said we will be kings and queens and rule and govern how we choose to. You see, but in God's original plan, we were given the earth as stewards to govern. And it was a beautiful, fruitful relationship that we had with the earth and with creation. And God ruled the whole cosmos. And then he said, and you can rule this bit and be like me. Be the image bearers of God. Be like me. But rule in the way that I would rule, which is the the way of of good. But we chose to, to rule in a different way. So the spiritual places and the physical places were, were enmeshed. They were one. They, they, they inhabited the same space for a while. Uh, and then, instead of acting in love and kindness and goodness towards one another in the earth, sin entered and those two spaces were separated. Because we are free agents and we can affect the way things happen. So even though God has a will, some people think that God's will is total and ultimate and that nothing can thwart God's will. But the problem is, is that God's will was that we would have free agency to make choices. So he gave us that power. And in order for us to truly be able to exhibit that power, he also had to give us the freedom to deny his will. So when we pray and we say, we want your will, God, we're saying, I'm going to partner my free will agency to, to call God's free will and agency into the earth as well. So the Bible uses certain words to describe these spaces, and we have certain lingo that we use. So we talk about heaven and earth. Uh, we talk about uh, things like uh, on, the, on this side, we talk about the kingdom of God, and we talk about the age to come is a, a very Jewish way of seeing that. Uh, whereas on the other side, the world side, we have the age of sin and death. It's much more morbid. Uh, we have the present age. We have, we have the, the world. Um, but there are still places where those things overlap. So the burning bush was this weird little space where God, space, and earth, human space overlapped. And there was this bush that just wouldn't burn up. And then later on, we see at Mount Sinai, the presence of God was there and Moses went up into, uh, into that presence and God's space and our space overlapped. It was holy ground. It wasn't just regular earth. It was holy earth. It was holy ground because God's space and human space overlapped. And then later uh, uh, in the wilderness time, they built a tent. And in that tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, it was God's space and human space overlapped again. It was the presence of God was there. So inside the tabernacle, it was actually designed in such a way that there was imagery and, and, and props in the tabernacle. It was a very weird theater that only a very few, very select people ever got to see. But the set was like that of the Garden of Eden. It was a mini Garden of Eden because that's what God's space was like. And then they had a special box. And they put God in that special box. And I feel like in Christendom, some people have never wanted to take God out of that box. Uh, but he is not in that box. It was, even then, it was just a symbol of his presence. And then we had the temple. And in the temple, there was the holiest of holies. And this was a, a place where God's space and human space overlapped. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was a belief that sacrifice could allow an animal to absorb a person's sin or their guilt and that they could then access God's space again. So sacrifice was actually a a custom that was across many ancient Near Eastern cultures. It wasn't just a 
a thing that the followers of Yahweh had. This was a very common practice. So Yahweh said, I will adopt this very common practice that you have of sacrifice because I want to relate well with you and I know you need to do something in order to feel forgiven. It's a symbol of their, of their repentance. It's a symbol of their ongoing relationship with God being restored. So through these sacrifices, people were able to be made right with God and, and God's space and human space, you could, they were inhabiting the same place there. But you see, the, the 8th century prophets, um, they wrote a lot about this uh, sacrifice thing quite a lot. Uh, so guys like Hosea and Amos, uh, and they painted a picture of very religious Israel. So Israel had festivals and sacrifices. They did all the things that they were meant to do. In fact, they were wealthy and prosperous. So they said, Yahweh must love all the things we're doing. We're doing it all right. The problem was, is they were wealthy and prosperous because of slavery. And they were wealthy and prosperous because they were um, doing business in ways that would take advantage of the poor. And so despite their sacrifices and despite their pilgrimages and their festivals and their outward uh, expressions of piety that they thought created God's space and human space overlapping, those things were just a symbol. But under the surface, there was a deep corruption. They were neglecting the poor. Israel's failure to honor their covenantal duties is not because they didn't sacrifice. It's because of slavery and sexual abuse and misconduct of collateral and resources and withholding justice and extorting the poor. Uh, oppression was rife and the wealthy, wealthy were living at the expense of the poor. They were living high at the expense of the poor. And the covenantal relationship between God and Israel that was meant to be characterized by fidelity and social justice was now not being represented like that and because of that god was being misrepresented in the earth he felt cranky because this people they were meant to be the image of god they were meant to love their neighbors and be a light unto the nations but instead they were a bunch of greedy awful people that didn't care for anyone else in amos 5 21 to 24 we have this passage which i think could very equally be applied to many areas of Christendom today and even in the side of, of the temple of our own heart, um, we could be accused of these things. The 8th century prophets, this is BC, they, um, they had some harsh words that, that ring true today. This is in Amos 5, 21 to 24. It says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let your justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. In Hosea 6, 6, 6, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, the people of God thought they could just kill some stuff and that would make it better. But really, that was only ever a charade that was there so that they could feel like they were doing the right thing. It was meant to be the... Uh, part of 
all of this other beautiful stuff, which is why Jesus, when he says to the Pharisees, he says, you tithe on your herb gardens, on, your, on, 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 the, on the tiniest little bit of your herbs, but you do not love justice and mercy. You don't uphold the, the more important matters of the law. And he says, you should do those other things too. By all means, as a Jew, the sacrificial system was incredibly important culturally and in their context. It was something that God loved from them, but only when it was the tip of the iceberg of justice and righteousness, not when it was all just show. All right, so now we fast forward. It's lucky we're skipping a lot of history there, which is a relief. We fast forward to Jesus, and at the beginning of John, this is John chapter 1, verse 14, he says these incredible words, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this word dwelling, skenal, means, means tabernacle. He made a space where God and earth meet. He made the place of God and the place of humanity meet again. And everywhere Jesus went, heaven and earth met. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. And when he healed people, uh, the word that we see there for heal, uh, I think it's sozo, word, it, it often is translated as, as liberty or freedom. He didn't just heal people, he set them free. And he didn't just set them free from their physical ailment, he set them free from sin. He forgave them. When he says, uh, take your mat and go, be forgiven and, and take your mat and go. It's the same thing that he's saying there. The space of heaven and the space of earth, they met in Christ. He was the tabernacle, the presence of God on earth. And everywhere he went, his presence brought about transformation. Later in, in John 1, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the sacrifice that creates a holy place on earth the whole earth. Everywhere Jesus went became holy ground. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the ultimate expression of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the shininess bit of God's shininess. He is the full representation of God on earth. And he wants to set people free. He wants to heal people. And he doesn't want them to be bound by sin and by death. When Jesus was raised, he opened the door fully for the kingdom of God's space and the earth's space to inhabit one another again like they did in the Garden of Eden. Not only in that, but his resurrection is also proof in the age to come that it will also be an age of flesh and blood still. And this is where we get into the lectionary verses for today uh, that we'll be reading in a second in, in Luke. They are proof because Christ's resurrected body was not a spiritual body alone. It was a resurrected body of flesh and blood. When we die, we won't just go to an ethereal plane and exist as spirits. We aren't going to die and go to heaven. We will eventually be resurrected on earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it doesn't mean in a completely different place. It means that all of this will be restored to how it should have been. And a lot of the time in Christendom, we, have grew, we grew up in the, the, the left behind, well, I did, some of you didn't, left behind generation where everything was about the, rap, the rapture. Everything was about when we would leave this 
sinful, broken, disgusting place. The whole earth will be rolled up like a scroll. We love to find the right verses so that we can say, we don't have to care about the environment. We don't have to care about the earth. We don't have to care about all of that. God won't allow it to be destroyed again because in Genesis, he said, I won't let there be a flood. We come up with all this theological mumbo jumble nonsense that says we don't have to be good stewards. And we don't have to care for this earth because we think that we will ascend to a spiritual plane when we die. But that's not what happens. And the Jews... When Jesus came back, they were kind of freaked out because in the Jewish worldview, there was the Sadducees who said there's nothing. After death, we just die. And then there was the Pharisees and they kind of said, no, 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 at the end, there will be a day of judgment where we'll all be resurrected and we'll be judged, which is more in line with the the, um, modern Christian view. So when Jesus resurrected and came back in flesh and blood, that was kind of weird because it was meant to happen later. They were all very confused, which is what happens in our, in our um, lecture and reading for today. But this idea of the physical and the spiritual being totally separate and that one day we will escape our broken, sinful flesh and ascend to our beautiful, glorious, sinless, heavenly bodies, spiritual bodies, that is, um, that's just not a biblical idea. It, it is a little bit more like Greek philosophy. Uh, so we have uh, a guy named Plato who you've probably heard of. He lived in like 400 and 300 BC, kind of overlapped the centuries there. Uh, And he had this idea that the flesh was inferior to the mind, which is what he thought represented the spirit. So Plato taught um, that the flesh was bad and the spirit and the mind were good. Uh, so this idea they were these two separate concepts and that they, you know, they could be split apart like that. Whereas the Corinthians, when we look at first century, uh, if, you, if you read any of the letters written to the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians were kind of a, your classic Hollywood party generation. They thought that the flesh was good and that in order to express themselves, they should express their flesh. Um, so they were really into uh, orgies and drinking and bad behavior. Uh, the Corinthians were debauched in every way and they thought that was an expression of how great they were. Um, there are many, many uh, westernized societies that live like this today, like the Corinthians. But there are also many in Christendom who have a more Plato view of the world and they think that we need to um, deny the flesh always in every way because any kind of joy or any kind of pleasure, they must be sinful because the flesh is bad. And and the verses that we're going to read now, finally getting there, are going to show us that that's not the case. Worldviews that demonize the flesh with the idea of escaping the flesh and going to heaven, um, closely go in hand with worldviews that say we don't need to give a damn about the environment or the earth because we're going to get rid of it anyway. But it's never been God's plan to destroy our place and relocate us to his place. It's always been his plan to bring his place back here and restore the earth and have a new creation. Luke chapter 24, and start uh, in 36 through to 49. It says, Jesus himself stood among them. So remember, we're in the lectionary, so we're following the church seasonally. So we're in the Easter season. This is the third week of Easter. Uh, So we've had the Easter bits, and now we have Jesus reappearing to his disciples. So last week we looked at Thomas, the honest poor old guy, uh, Thomas the doubter. He, uh, and we all got to identify with Thomas because we like him. We don't want to make him feel bad. Um, So we have Thomas 
And now we're kind of getting this story, but we're reading it from the book of Luke. I think last week we were in the book of John. Jesus himself, uh, himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Fair enough, right? Most of them have heard rumors that Jesus is back, but they had just assumed that he was a wandering spirit at this point, which is part of their own kind of cultural folklore and mythology. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? I like to think it's to make the rest of us feel better. <laughs> Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. In the Greek, there's some weird stuff that happens there, but I won't go into it. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, again, this is another section that's really odd to read. And even in the English, it's, it's stunted a bit. And while they did not believe, no, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they're bewildered. They're, they're over, they're belief, they're like, this is incredible. I don't believe you. Like you're standing in front of me, but it's clearly a hoax. Must be a ghost. That's the only reasonable explanation. He asks them, do you have anything here to eat? This is important because in their folklore, ghosts couldn't eat. All right, you might be able to trick me, but he's like, all right, then I'll give you the ultimate proof of my fleshiness. Give me food. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and die from the dead. Uh, rise from the dead. He's going to die from the dead. That makes sense. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So now, historically, this idea of Jesus' body being flesh has been a real theological, orthodoxical kind of, it's not a conundrum because we certainly believe that Jesus was raised in flesh. He goes out of his way so frequently after the resurrection to be like, well, I'm having a sandwich, like to show to them in, the, in their cultural lingo, how best to say, I'm a real flesh and blood dude. Touch, touch me. I saw a terrible uh, comic this week of Thomas saying, um, I won't believe it until I touch him with, with my own hands. And then Jesus comes up behind him and puts his hands over his eyes. And he says, guess who? Um, but there's obviously the holes in his hands so he can see through the hands. And I felt bad laughing and I feel even worse telling you about it. Uh, guess who? So in 1, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes, has this whole section about Jesus' body being resurrected and, and like it's a big, big deal. Uh, so if you're super uh, interested in that, 1 Corinthians 15 is the best place to look. Um, so he goes to these great lengths to show that he is corporeal. He has a body. Look uh, at me. Touch my wounds. Touch my flesh. Feed me. Like an angry toddler. 
Jesus' physical incarnation, his physical death and his physical resurrection, which we in Christendom mark with Christmas and then Easter, are central to the idea of his embodiment of humanity. He had to become one of us, not just a little bit like us, but entirely like us. And in that we see that the human form, the idea of a human body was designed from the beginning to be able to house the divine. There is nothing wrong and bad about our bodies. But for lots of people, we get raised up in a way and we get taught in a certain way that we should dislike our body in some way, especially if we have desires or we have uh, longings or needs or any of these things and we think, oh, no, that's wrong. And then we, we whip in there a few of the right Bible verses and we say, no, 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 any desire you have is lustful. And any, uh, even if you want to enjoy your food, then you're a glutton. Uh, and if you want to, like we have painted a picture where the body is wrong and bad and evil and we need to escape it to our good, wholesome, true self in heaven. And what we do is we ruin our life now. We think that it's holy to always be uh, celibate and always be fasting and always be cranky. We're more righteous if we are sad. We are more righteous if we're being tormented. And it's nonsense. Jesus is the ultimate expression of how the body is good and the creation is good. In the beginning, God made us from the dust he makes everything and he says it's good. And then he makes humankind from the dust and he says, this is very good. And he still thinks that. We were born into blessing, not just some weird bogus curse. We were born into blessing and the body and the world is good and we should protect it. We should care for it. We should look after it. When the judgment ultimately comes, it's not to to be the destruction of the world. It will be the destruction of death and the restoration of the world. This is good news. Resurrection isn't simply about going to heaven. Resurrection is about having a transformed body in a transformed world, and we can experience that now. It's now that we are beginning to be new creations, and it's now that we start to create all things new in the world. When we look after the environment, we are partnering with God in the, in the, the um, thing we were told to do at the very beginning and the thing that God is ultimately going to complete. Going to heaven or escaping via a rapture has become a pretty pervasive meme in Christendom. But Jesus' resurrected body teaches us that the new age to come isn't just a spiritual existence on a spiritual plane. It's not how it works. Our resurrected bodies will inhabit um, not just some weird new realm in the clouds. In, uh, in Revelation, I haven't got the verses here, but it talks about the holy city will descend on the earth. And it is confusing because it says a, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, but we didn't move. We didn't go up there. It came down here. It descends onto the earth. And more than that, we are meant to be living examples of that now. Living examples of that now, which means that we need to enjoy the bodies that we have and enjoy the creation that we have and care for them. Now, we also do have this problem of sin and death. So sometimes my body desires things that are not good for it. Uh, and, and I have to fight the temptation to give in to what is not good for my body. Sometimes my body is angry with people in a very unrighteous way. Sometimes my body... Um, 
uh, it has those deep feelings of rage. Uh, sometimes my body has deep feelings of wanting more chocolate. And there is a certain threshold of chocolate that is good, but there is a certain threshold of chocolate that is not good. There are ways that we can express our individuality that are healthy and God-honoring and ways that aren't. I'm not saying that we should be like the Corinthians and live a debauched way and, and just uh, live in excess. But we also shouldn't demonize how good things God has made. At the end of that section of scripture, when Jesus uh, is speaking to his disciples, he says, um, he says, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It's kind of a weird one. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. See, repentance is not just a personal thing. In the, in the old covenant, they didn't just make sacrifices for the individual sins. They made sacrifices for the collective sins of their nations. Repentance isn't simply a personal prayer that we say. Now, I think that it's important that we repent. But repentance um, that Jesus is speaking about will impact communities and nations. First with Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. It's the consummation of all that was foretold, foretold about Jesus and it results in a restored creation. It's the beautiful culmination of all the things that God started and wanted to finish with as well. In the end, he wins. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you uh, believe that the creation is good and that the people in it are good. And I am sorry that we do things that fall short of that goodness. I pray that you would forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I thank you that uh, you have given us great opportunities for joy. I pray that we would make sure that we share that joy, that you have given us great opportunities for peace. I pray that we would share that peace. I pray that we would be great witnesses here on earth um, as it is in heaven. Uh, and, and that means that we wouldn't just see it, that we would exhibit it, that we would live it, that we would be your witnesses by living out the new creation and the new kingdom of God here now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.